Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you this Sunday. I want to assure you, if you have any concerns about that dissolving thing that Drew was talking about, I've served other churches and they dissolved me also, <laughs> but I somehow keep being reconstituted, so it's nothing to fear, really. As you have heard, God has recently and quite surprisingly, from my point of view, called me to serve somewhere else, to serve uh, St. Andrews Hall, which is a Presbyterian theological seminary uh, located in Vancouver, British Columbia. Now, this involves a geographical relocation. We'll just be moving up the coast a few miles from here. Um, But despite that geographical relocation, I actually will be involved in exactly the same challenge and the same ministry that we are involved here uh, with you here in Los Angeles as well. And that has to do with how to bear fruitful witness to the gospel in the midst of this very challenging and complex cultural context in which we live. In order to shed some light on that, in order to begin to explain why I think that we need new maps to guide us in that mission within this cultural context, I want to tell you an old story about Alexander the Great. The story goes that one day the generals that served under him, leading his army, came to him and, and complained that they didn't know what to do next. The reason was because they had marched so far, they had conquered such a vast territory, they had moved so far away from home that they literally had marched off their maps. Now, how do you know where to go if you aren't even on the map anymore? I'm not sure that Alexander's conquering army is the best analogy for us to use to think about our mission in the midst of culture. And I'm also not convinced that it's the case that we, the church, in North America have marched off the map. I think rather we come closer to it to think of it this way, that the maps we have used for a long time, the maps that we as followers of Christ have used to to locate ourselves and to understand ourselves in relationship to the larger society, the world around us, the, uh, the culture, so to speak, that those maps that we have used for so long, no longer represent reality. Simply put, the world has changed a great deal. There was a time when the predominant values and customs of North American society more or less lined up with Christian values and moral convictions. Now, Christianity in North America never has been established by law, as was the case in Europe, but nonetheless, the culture of North America has been largely Christianized in the past as a matter of history and tradition. And because of that, the church has occupied a place on the cultural map as an institution respected and significant and responsible for what you could call the religious activities of a society that largely believed in God, believed in God, in fact, in the way that Christians would understand God. Well, I hardly need to tell you that that is no longer the case, and that is why we need new maps. 
not maps that represent what used to be, but maps that will help us to navigate the future, maps that will help us to locate ourselves and find our way in a cultural context that is, in every sense of the term, a foreign mission field. Even though that mission field is right outside our doors, right next door with our neighbors, and right down the street. Now, some of us, certainly myself, are old enough to remember when American society did not seem quite so foreign to Christianity. And when we think about how much has changed, sometimes we feel a deep sadness over what has been lost. And other times, if we're honest with ourselves, we actually feel very angry about it. It's easy to feel as though something really good has been taken away, and there is a part of us that has the instinct to want to take it back. But the reality is that's not so easy to do, and it is not likely to happen anytime soon. And so the situation we find ourselves in is something like what the Israelites of Jeremiah's time were up against. They had been overrun by a much stronger culture, stronger empire, the Babylonians. The Babylonians came into Judah, they took Jerusalem apart piece by piece, stone by stone, and they hauled away most of its inhabitants into exile as captives in a foreign land. For the Israelites of that generation, their situation seemed hopeless. And yet, and yet God spoke a word of hope to them concerning their future. I'd like you to look at this scripture with me. We find it in the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29. It's uh, page 639 in the Pew Bible if you want to pull that out, and I think you'll see it on the screen as well. It's just two verses but it sums up God's word of hope to his people in a time that must have seemed hopeless. Jeremiah 29 at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. The place he's referring to there would be Jerusalem, home for them. And then in verse 11, For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. I know the plans I have for you, said the Lord, not to harm you, plans for your good, for your welfare, plans to give you a future that is bright and filled with hope. But I wonder if you caught the irony in these two verses. The promised future filled with hope of which God spoke was 70 years away, an entire lifetime in fact. How do you hang your hopes on something like that? How can you walk faithfully with God in a land, a foreign land, that does not know Him or honor His name? 
Or we might ask ourselves, what is our mission? And what does it look like when we are a minority in the larger culture? With those questions in mind, I'd like to ask you just to pray with me for a minute, and then we'll talk about the maps that we need to navigate into the future as followers of Jesus Christ. Let's just pray for a moment, shall we? Our Lord, we ask you in these uh, moments that we share together to give us your Holy Spirit, to illumine our hearts and our minds, give us wisdom and insight. Speak to us, Lord, so that we might see more clearly how to follow you faithfully in this place that you have put us. In Christ we pray. Amen. When we start talking about mapping the future, it is absolutely crucial for us to think theologically, theologically about that. And the way you do that is you start with theo, with God. To think theologically very simply means to think about the world and the situation we're in from a, from a God-centered starting place and point of view. And doing so can save us from choosing a path that might make perfect sense to us but which in fact could be completely contrary to the ways and the wisdom of God. Maps, after all, are useless if they are not oriented to some fixed point, some north star, some north pole. When it comes to a theological map to guide our mission, the north star, the north pole, if you will, that fixes us, that orients us, is the truth that we know about God as revealed in Jesus Christ, to whom the Scriptures bear witness. You know, oftentimes we talk about how important it is to be biblical, but I want to offer a word of caution along those lines. People who say that they're being biblical can mean all kinds of different things by that word. And we want to make sure that when we talk about being biblical, that we are talking about a way of reading the Bible that keeps our eyes clearly focused on Jesus Christ. He's the center of the whole story. He's the one who defines for us and reveals to us who God is and what God is really like. So with that in mind, let me offer to you an outline of a theological map for mission in North America. And as a matter of fact, I, I brought a map with me. It's, uh, it's right here on uh, this iPhone. I suspect that many of you may have a similar device in your pocket or in your purse. And if you want to pull it out, that'd be great. And, and then just ignore it and listen to me instead. Okay. <laughs> but I, I find that there are three features, capabilities of the map or the maps that are available to me on this digital device that make, make it extremely valuable to me. One of them is that it's possible on these maps to zoom out, if you will, and to get a wide-angle view of a whole region or territory. A second feature, though, is that you can zoom in and you can get a very, very detailed view of something close up, even at street level. It's remarkable. And then there's a third feature, which is that this device gives me real-time information. It tells me what the weather is and what the weather is going to be in a few hours. It tells me what the traffic is like in different parts of Los Angeles. It's always bad. Um, 
It gives routes around the traffic and so forth. So it, it adjusts to changing circumstances and communicates all kinds of useful information. I want to suggest that we need the same kinds of features for our theological map that guides us in our mission within this cultural context. So first of all, let's talk about that feature in which we zoom out for a wide-angle view. We need a new map as followers of Christ for how we think about culture, specifically how we think about our relationship to culture or our mission to culture. We need a new map because there's an old map that no longer serves us very well. For a long time in the 20th century before that and even to some extent now, many Christian leaders in speaking about the church's mission have used language like this, that our goal, our mission is to conquer the world for Christ. That's language that was associated with an, an age when empires, in fact, went about the world conquering and colonizing other people. And so in that kind of a world, if you're part of those conquering nations, you, you use that language and it resonates to a certain sense. It makes sense. But in today's world, in the world we live in today, that language no longer cuts it. In fact, we ought to be embarrassed by it. It associates us with the most extreme elements in our world that in fact are conquering and killing all over the place, even in the name of God. And to represent the Christian mission in those terms, in that kind of vocabulary, is a huge problem for us at this time. It's not just a PR problem, though. It's a theological problem. Because the king that we serve, the kingdom of God that we represent, our King Jesus did not come to this world with a conquering army. He came unarmed. And in fact, he laid down his life as the humblest of servants in order to lift us up, to bring healing, to bring liberation, to bring salvation. And so we need a map, a way of understanding how we are related to culture that moves away from the language of conquest and finds different ways to speak of it. There's another map as well that needs to be replaced. It's more recent in its origins, but it's old enough that it also ought to be tossed out. And that is the map that reflects the language that the church now somehow has become marginalized relative to culture. To be marginalized very simply means that we are not very important uh, anymore certainly not as important, perhaps, as we once were. But when we adopt that kind of a language, that sort of a concept, that map, for locating ourselves relative to culture, we make two mistakes. The first is that we concede too much theologically. It has never been the case in God's economy that numbers or status within culture is a measure of significance. So there are surveys that have come out recently that are telling us that there are fewer and fewer Christians in America now than there were just even 10 years ago. 
And that's concerning in some ways, but I doubt that it has anything to do with how significant the church is or followers of Christ are in the eyes of God. We ought not to underestimate how important we are in what God is doing. That's the first mistake. But the second is that when we speak of ourselves being marginal to culture, we make a kind of methodological misstep as well. And that is, has to do with what, how we think about culture itself. You see, culture, a word that we use all the time to represent all kinds of things, culture is not a thing that is out there, separate from us somehow, that we either have to conquer on the one hand or that we have to defend ourselves against and, and somehow survive on the other. You can think of it this way. Nature, which you can see out the windows and all around us on a beautiful day like this, nature is the world that God gives us, and we simply receive it. Culture is the world that we create as human beings. And it's not just that we as followers of Christ create it. In fact, we share in the creation of culture with all people, regardless of what they believe or not. And culture in this sense is an expression of the freedom and the responsibility that God gave us as human beings. In other words, the reason that we have something called culture at all is because part of God's design was to give human beings freedom and responsibility to take the world that he has given us and to make something of it, of it for better or for worse. And we do make something of it for better and for worse. The fact that it is sometimes worse is not because culture in and of itself is a bad thing. It's part of God's design, but it reflects the sinfulness and the brokenness that we have as human beings. And so we need a theological map about our relationship to culture that pulls us away from this idea that culture is something separate that we either conquer or that we fear, and to realize that culture is something that we actually participate in. We are part of it. And we need a theology that calls us to responsible participation in the cultural process with others, with others of goodwill, finding as much common ground for the common good as we possibly can in every circumstance, because we're all in this together. And we, as followers of Christ, need to work with others everywhere that we can for the common good. We need to stop seeing ourselves as cultural antagonists and become instead responsible participants in shaping society and renewing culture more and more towards God's gracious purposes for human beings. That's the wide-angle view, the first feature of our map that we need. Now let's zoom in for a close-up view. In uh, my doctoral research a number of years ago, I analyzed in fact, the mental maps that are at play in different discourses in mission theology, specifically by comparing two theologians, Leslie Newbigin and Laman Sane. Newbigin, for his part, is great on the big picture, uh, not so much on the details. 
Uh, Laman Sana, by, the, by contrast, uh, closely studied the dynamics that were involved when European missionaries brought the gospel to Africa. Now, you can imagine that that encounter between these Europeans and these Africans was for cultural conflicts of all kinds. And in fact, there were indeed conflicts in many cases. There's a lot that could be said about this, but the key takeaway from Sané's insight is this. Conflicts between people of different cultures, people of different beliefs, and so forth, conflicts that appear to be intractable on a large scale can, in fact, be overcome at a smaller scale. That is to say, person to person. Now, there were missionaries that went from Europe into Africa and did all kinds of things that were really disrespectful and damaging to the people and the cultures that they encountered. That's clear from the record. But it's also very clear from the record that not every missionary was like that. There were others that interacted with the Africans that they encountered with respect and with humility and with an attitude of listening and learning. And in those instances, they were able to convey the message of the gospel in a way that it could be received not as some kind of a foreign imperialism being imposed on other people, but in fact as a life-giving word from God that brought liberation and hope and life. The difference was in the attitude and the approach of the particular missionary. This says a great deal to, deal to us about how we will need to follow Christ and bear witness to Him within our cultural context text. You know that Christian faith uh, in our country in the last 20, 30 years has become very much entangled with partisan politics. There is abundant evidence at this point, all kinds of surveys have been done, that this entanglement of the church's faith with particular brands of politics has had a devastating impact on the church's reputation and credibility in our society, especially, especially among younger people. In the minds of the American public, being a Christian has come to mean in many cases little more than holding certain political views as opposed to others. And tragically, that is how many Christians have come to see it as well. We need a new map of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple. Especially we need that at the micro zoom-in level. What would it mean, for example, what would happen if Christians were known for demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit? Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What if we were known for that rather than being known for being angry, sore losers in the political struggle for social dominance? Would it make a difference? You bet it would. We need a map that teaches us a way of discipleship that's about personal transformation. 
a way of following Christ in which the aim is to become more like Christ. You know, it's easy enough to learn the theological meaning of a term like grace. But how do we learn to exemplify graciousness in the way that we relate to other people? I've been asked uh, quite a bit in the last month or so, and I think that Drew has been asked this question a lot too, what, what does it mean that, that I, as the pastor of discipleship, am leaving? Does that mean that discipleship is somehow going to get lost in the shuffle here at Bel Air or be de-emphasized or, or set aside? I don't think that that's what's going to happen, and I'll tell you why. I've been here not quite three years. It's been an interesting season to be a part of the staff at Bel Air. You know, I, um, I arrived and seven weeks later Mark Brewer left. I, I don't think I really had much to do with that, but uh, that's how it happened. And then Dave McKechnie came and he was here for 18 months. And then, as you know, of course, Drew was called a little over a year ago as the senior pastor. So there's been a lot of uh, leadership transition in the senior leadership position. But during that period of time, Something that I often thought and often felt said to myself and to some others is that what this church really needed was not a department that talked about discipleship, but rather was a senior pastor who would make discipleship the center point of what we're all about of being followers of Christ, growing in Christ, being transformed by His power to become more like Him, and that that would define, that would be the defining center of what happens in this church. And my friends, that is exactly what God has given us, and we ought to be glad for it. So I have no fear that discipleship is somehow going to be swept away into a corner. I don't think that's going to happen at all. Instead, I think that we will continue to hear a clear and compelling call to give our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. So let's talk then, third, about why a dynamic map, a real-time information map, is so important to our mission. You know, Scripture teaches us again and again and again that we ought to pay attention to the Holy Spirit. There's one particular story that I've always found uh, compelling that we find in the book of Acts, chapter 16. It relates a portion of the Apostle Paul's ministry that illustrates the point. I'm going to read this from Eugene Peterson's translation of the New Testament. It's called The Message. He's describing the Apostle Paul and his band of co-workers as they were traveling through what is modern-day Turkey. He says, they went to Phrygia and then on through the region of Galatia. Their plan was to turn west into Asia province, but the Holy Spirit blocked that route. So they went to Mycenae and they tried to go north to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them go there either. So. Proceeding on through Mycenae, they went down to the seaport, Troas. They wanted to go west, and the Spirit said no. They tried to go north, and the Spirit said no. So they kept going straight ahead until they ran into the ocean. That night, Paul had a dream. 
A Macedonian stood on the far shore and called across the sea, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And then Peterson translates, The dream gave Paul his map. So we went to work at once, getting things ready to cross over to Macedonia. All the pieces had come together. We knew now for sure that God had called us to preach the good news to the Europeans. This is a pivotal moment in the history of the church, in the history of Christian mission, when the gospel for the very first time through the ministry of Paul moves from Asia to Europe. And it was because they paid attention to the Holy Spirit. West, no. North, no. Straight ahead until they stood on the edge of the sea, and then the Holy Spirit gave Paul a new map. We need to cultivate the capacity to hear the Holy Spirit, to discern the leading of God and to respond to it with with ready and glad obedience. We will not achieve much in our witness and work for the Lord until we have learned to walk with the Lord in dynamic, spirit-led obedience. After all, we are post-Pentecostal people. And that means that the Holy Spirit and hearing the Spirit is not something that is just the role of the pastors or the staff. It's not something that just belongs to the mystics in our midst. Instead, because we are post-Pentecost, we are the people on whom the Holy Spirit has been poured out en masse on all of us with all of our gifts and all of our perspective. And sometimes we hear the Spirit speaking most clearly when we really listen to what our fellow members in the body of Christ are saying, because the Spirit so often speaks to us through one another. So, wide-angle view, a different way of thinking about ourselves as responsible participants in culture, having a great deal that our society and world needs and that we have to offer. A close-up zoom-in view that puts the focus on the fruit of the Spirit, on being Christ-like in our following of Jesus. So that in those one-on-one conversations, in those encounters with neighbors and coworkers, on that small-scale level, we can get beyond the conflicts that seem so intractable in a large scale and bear witness to the grace of God that we have come to know in Jesus Christ. And when we bring it down to that level, there are people that are going to be hungry and eager to hear what we have to share. And then the real-time information, the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, so important for us to be guided into the future by the way that the Spirit would lead us that we could never predict. When it comes to mapping the future theologically, these digital, devi- digital devices, that's a tongue twister, they suggest to me one more thing, and that is that a device like this works, and it's useful because it is connected to a huge network. This would be nothing if it were not for that connection to the internet with that amazing flow of information and so forth. 
When it comes to thinking about our mission theologically, we are connected to something that is far greater than the internet. The Latin term for it is the missio dei, which simply means the mission of God. It is God himself who animates our mission as the church. It is God who has a mission before we have it to the world. And his saving goal is nothing less than the redemption and the renewal of his whole creation. We see this in John's glorious vision in the last book and in the last chapter of the Bible. When the one who is seated on the throne says this, See, I am making everything new. God's aim is not simply to pluck a few out of the world and then abandon it. His aim is to take what he has created and made out of the generosity of his love and his power and to redeem it, to revive it, to renew it, to make it be what it was meant to be. That is God's great mission. It involves nature, it involves culture, and it involves human beings. We need to be clear, of course, that this great renewal that God is bent on bringing about does not arrive all at once. It certainly is not constructed through human effort alone. It comes and will come by the working of God's renewing Holy Spirit who calls us to follow Jesus, who disciples us in the way of the Lord, who enables us to bear witness in both word and deed, who empowers us to participate fruitfully in God's great mission no matter what circumstances we face. And our mission, when we see it in these terms, participating in God's great mission, it's not merely a task or a duty. It's a gift. It is a calling that is filled with grace because when we participate and bear witness to the gospel of God's redeeming and renewing purposes, we find that we are redeemed and renewed. Mapping the future theologically as participation in the Missio Dei, God's greater mission can save us from the reductionism that is all too common in our churches today, where the gospel seems to be only about getting into heaven or only about fighting over one issue or another while we're on earth. We need to get beyond that. New maps will teach us to trust the Holy Spirit to lead us into a glorious participation in what the Lord is doing. After all, it's God who is the one who said, I know the plans that I have for you, not to harm you, but for your welfare, your well-being, plans to give you a future filled with hope. And so Bel Air Church, or any church across this continent, when the way seems blocked to the left and to the right, when we've gone straight ahead and we've come to a place that seems to block us and we don't know where to go, then God will give us the map that we need. 
And more than just a map, he may very well give us a ship to carry us across. And we may find ourselves involved in a voyage of discovering the tremendous, tremendous things that God can do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray for a minute, shall we? Our Lord, we thank you that you've called us to follow, that you've called us to get on board with what you're doing. You've called us, Lord, to bear our witness in the midst of whatever the circumstance is. And so, Lord, give us the new maps we need that we can honor your name, that we can bear fruitful witness to you, for we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Susie, why don't you come on up and… Well, we, we give thanks to God and all that He did in and through you over these last couple of years, and though we'll have some time after our congregational meeting to have a reception for the two of you. Uh, there's also a letter that I've read that the two of you wrote for the congregation. That's going to be available for all those that would like to take that and read that uh, on the connection booth outside. We'll also have many of those, hundreds of them, in fact, uh, enough for everybody. And we would love to get that in your hands to be reminded of what God is doing, not only now, but through them moving forward. So let's, let's take a moment, let's pause, and let's pray for both Bob and Susie Paul. Let's pray. God, I thank You so much in this moment that we can be reminded that You are a God that is very active in our lives. And in some ways, it's bittersweet to know that You've led both Bob and Susie up the coast, as Bob says, up to Vancouver, but we entrust them to You. As they leave this space, as they leave the warm weather of Southern California, God, I pray that You would provide them a community to encourage them, to love them, to pray for them, to lift one another up. God, I pray that You would provide places where they can not only connect as a couple, but to be used in mighty ways beyond what we could ever ask or imagine for You. And God, we thank You that You're going to use Bob in this new role to raise up a new generation of leaders, of missionaries, of pastors, to help us map the future, one that keeps you, Jesus, at the center, following your Spirit, God. So as we as individuals and as a church, as we stand in some ways at the edge of a shore, not knowing what the future has in store, not only today but tomorrow, next week and next year, God, we ask that your Spirit would lead us. And we thank You for this reminder that not only You've given us today through this message, but that You've given us through the lives of both Bob and Susie. We thank You for how they've lived. We thank You for how they've loved. And we've learned so much, things that we'll keep with us long after they make their way north. So, Jesus, we thank You for Your love, and it's in Your mighty and matchless name we pray. Amen. Well, as they grab a seat and as you grab a seat, why don't we give them again a warm thank you for all that they've done. <laughs>